earlier this year, uh, just before the COVID shutdown was announced, there were already times of crisis in many of our lives. The last few months and the difficulties of COVID have certainly been on the forefront of our minds, but I was reminded just this week that 2020 had some challenges before the shutdown began. Recall one of those instances in relation to our small group. If you're a guest with us, we have small groups that meet uh, during the week, normally Wednesdays, Thursday nights throughout the city, uh, six of them, and they, uh, all the members of our church are part of those. You have to be in one to be a member of our church. We're intentional about keeping those geographically separated so they're convenient as much as possible. Uh, we have uh, diversity in terms of age, so older and younger folks together in the same groups. It's an important part of our church, really life, and uh, have been for over 15 years. And in, in the midst of the early stuff of 2020, there was a crisis point for some things in our church and some things in people's lives in our group, and they were coming together at the same time. Have you ever noticed that in your life? It's the week that the dishwasher breaks, that the mower breaks, that the car tires need to be replaced. Right? They don't spread out. The inconveniences all pile up. This is just a part of the Lord's work in our lives. But this was a serious time. And some of these crises uh, could, could have really adjusted some lives of people who we loved. And, and it was a few days where no matter what I was doing, I wasn't thinking about what I was doing unless I was addressing these issues. I could have been having a counseling appointment with someone. I could have been teaching a class. I could have been editing something I was trying to publish writing something, preaching even. And in the back of my mind, the, the wheels were spinning toward this and that because those were just, they really could affect life for a lot of people I love in my own life. And so this, this sort of came to a head, I think, early in the week, and our group meets on Wednesday. And so I send, I send out texts every week to our group, hey, here's what we're doing this week, here's the time we're meeting uh, whatever's going on, catch each other up. But this week I said, we are going to adjust group. We're not going to do our particular study. The kids are not going to be with us. We're going to put a movie on in the other room for them, and we are going to pray. We are, we are going to just get started and continue and end begging God because these, these concerns are crisis kinds of concerns for our church, for the few people in our group who, whose lives were affected by by certain issues, and we're just going to pray. We're just going to seek God. I say, asking for your understanding, I hope you've been there. I don't want crises in your life, trust me. My pastoral philosophy, I would love everyone on the beach with a drink in their hand, and I'm a waiter. That, that's just, I, that would be ideal for me. 
But I, I understand that's not how God's going to work in our lives. That's not how he has revealed himself and what, what's his plan to show his glory through us. Crises are going to come. And I hope you've been there, that when the crises have come, you've had no second option. We are just going to stop and pray because we have nothing else that can help us here. Locate with me in your Bibles, Second Chronicles 20. If you're a guest with us, we've been walking through First and Second Chronicles for almost two years now. We took a break at Easter uh, this year and began to go through First Peter and through Second Peter, and now back into Second Chronicles. Last week we sort of got caught up to speed in a flyover of these books, and today here re-entering the text in chapter twenty in the midst of the reign of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's reign, if you flip back a couple of pages, begins in chapter 17, and he is a a remarkable figure. He initiates an an education plan in Judah where he, he sends out Levites to teach people dispersed in the cities of Judah. His concern is what a king of Judah should be concerned for. Their primary task was to keep the nation as an understood people of God. That included military protection, and it included education. And we see that here even in chapter 17. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 7, Jehoshaphat's educational plan, distributing Levites, so they would go and teach the law to the people, so they would remember who they are. When we think about the law in the Old Testament, we need to understand, and you may be newer to Christianity and understand that the, the law is not just God telling people what to do and what not to do, as if he's, he's just concerned about the do's and the don'ts. That is true. God is concerned about do's and don'ts, very concerned. But all of that is in a broader revelation of his plan for his people to reveal him to the world through the land he's given to them. That is to say, as God keeps his promises, the promises he made of goodness to his people, bringing them into this special land, showing his power to maintain them there as they're faithful. Those do's and don'ts of God's commands of his law They are the expression of his people that they are trusting him to keep his promises in the law. God's law is full of promises. Promises first made to Abraham that we're going to see here in chapter 20 today. Promises that God would, through this one man, produce many people, bring them into a special place, and through his descendants in this place reveal himself. This is the the law that God has revealed. And this law that we are thinking about is regulating the people's lives. And Jehoshaphat wants the people to remember it, to remember God's promises. This law includes the fact that God is the creator. He's the one who's chosen Abraham and them, and they're to live a certain way in response to practice these ideas. But military 
success as well. Jehoshaphat enjoyed. He, he established fortifications in Judah to make sure that the, the nation was safe, beginning in chapter 17 and verse 17. We read about Jehoshaphat's military strength. We skim ahead to chapter 19, and the, the chapter before we're looking at today in chapter 20, in chapter 19, Jehoshaphat, again in the cities of Judah, establishes judges who will hear disputes amongst the people. He's concerned for fellowship, if you will. We're in the midst of a, a fellowship emphasis as a church, so we're thinking now about love for one another, helping one another, and in Jehoshaphat's day, justice amongst the people, sending out these judges. So just catching up to speed, in chapters 17 and 19, Jehoshaphat has, has done what a king is supposed to do. He has made sure the people know God's word. He has established military fortifications to make sure that the nation is secure, And he has then sent out these judges to hear disputes so that the nation maintains peace. Because if you have peace on the outside, what must you be concerned about on the inside? Peace as well. Everything's set. That's that's what we should recognize. In, In chapter 17 and 19, we have a perspective of Jehoshaphat that everything's pretty well settled. Things are in good standing, good order. The... To use a metaphor of a vehicle, uh, the, the tires have been rotated. I have checked the oil. There's been a tune-up. Everything's working the way it should. Sometimes in our lives, when we are faithful, when things seem to be working as they should, when we are responding in a way that God has said to respond, we are doing what we should do. At those points, what do we expect from God? We often expect blessing, don't we? I expect that because I have been faithful to do what God said to do with these basic structures of life, for Jehoshaphat, instruction of the people in the law, military strength, setting out judges to keep the peace, all these structures. What a great king. What a great... I have been faithful as a husband. I have been faithful as a wife. I have been faithful as a parent. I have been faithful as a child. I have been faithful as an employee. I have been faithful as a business owner. I have been faithful as a student. I have been faithful as a teacher. I have done, generally speaking, what God said to do. And what do we expect? We often expect blessing, don't we? We expect that if we have done what God said, we've set out these structures, we've followed them, we've listened, we expect blessing. Mark it well. If we read the Old Testament clearly, the Old Testament that is often thought to be tit for tat, that some will persuade us to think is is if you do good you'll be blessed and if you do wrong you'll be recompensed the same which does happen that's that does happen you know there are also many exceptions and second chronicles 20 is one of them jehoshaphat in many places has done what is right 
structurally speaking, he's done what's right. And he gets attacked. That's what chapter 20 is about. It's a crisis. It's a crisis not just from one nation. Everything's ganging up. Again, it's the more breaking down, your tires and you know, dishwasher too. It's inside the house, it's outside the house, and it's your transportation, you know, all at once. Well, that's the situation with Jehoshaphat. These nations gang up on him, and it is a time of crisis. And I want to argue today that Second Chronicles 20 provides us a framework for how we should interpret our trials, our difficult times, and how we should respond. We're thinking a lot about this in fellowship season right now, and the value of fellowship in difficult times. And this passage will play right into our thoughts there. In times of crisis, times of crisis compel us. If we're seeking God, these times of crisis compel us to seek him together so that we can have greater confidence in him in the midst of what's going on. Now, 2 Chronicles 20, we're just dealing with half the chapter today. Next, uh, in two weeks, next week's our missions conference and going to enjoy themes on missions there. Todd Price is going to be preaching. It'll be a wonderful time and we'll be thinking more about that here this week in our church email. Send out more info and going to be a great time. In two weeks, we're going to come back and think further about Jehoshaphat and we'll catch ourselves up and, and see the result of all of this. But today, how we should respond to difficult times. Crisis, compel, confidence. Those three words. Crisis compels, compels us to seek God and confidence in him. Notice with me in the text, Second Chronicles 20, verses 1 to 2. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites together with some of the Munites came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast multitude from beyond the Dead Sea and from Edom has come to fight against you. They are already in Hazazan Tamar, which is En Gedi. These peoples who are on the far side of the Dead Sea have come south around the southern edge of the Dead Sea to En Gedi, a military encampment, which is sort of a temporary spot because it has the Dead Sea on one side and then a land to, to head east or westward, rather, toward Jerusalem, toward Bethany in that general area. You can go north of it to, to Jerusalem there, and that's going to be the main destination that someone would go on. This is only a temporary hangout because if someone goes east like the king from Jerusalem with troops from Judah toward En Gedi, you have what on the other side? The Dead Sea, there's nowhere to escape to. So it's, it's a place of vulnerability. And these nations, Moab, Edom, these are nations that have a history with God's people. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. In Genesis 36, we read about 
Esau going and settling on the far side of the Dead Sea, and his descendants are there. And it's, it's the, the people of Moab that would not allow, and, and Edom that would not allow Israel to pass through on the main highway after the Exodus, when they're headed up to take possession of the Promised Land. They go on the far side of the Dead Sea, the eastern side, and they're headed up to the plains of Moab. We're going to cross the Jordan River, and they're going to settle in the land. There's a main highway there, and Edom would not let them pass through. Jacob's descendants, or rather Esau's descendants, would not let them pass through. Moses even says, hey, we are your brother. He, he calls back to Jacob, and he says, we're your brother here. Yeah, the same lineage, back to Abraham. Let us pass through, and they wouldn't let them pass through. There's tension in these nations, and now they recognize Jehoshaphat's strength And Jehoshaphat is strong, and he's been faithful to God, and a crisis comes. These nations have come right there, but they're in a vulnerable spot. I want to tease out their vulnerability just for a moment, because it plays into what Jehoshaphat does. He's strong. He has military strength. He's teaching people the law, and he's set up judges to try to keep peace amongst the people. He's trying to seek peace outside, inside, and he's trying to keep the people's identity. That's what a king is supposed to do. And these nations are kind of in a vulnerable place. they got the Dead Sea on one side. In one sense, all Jehoshaphat would have to do is go attack them. If you're a military strategist, one of your primary concerns is geography, especially in this day. Which, by the way, if if you're newer to Christianity, the Bible, one of the phenomena of the Old Testament that is remarkable is it talks a lot about war. And it talks about nations and war and how God is involved in that. That's common for that day. It would be strange if God revealed himself in a text of some kind, in, in, in some book, and it didn't talk about the normal, everyday stuff of life, but the Old Testament does. You just need to understand that it's, it's directed to the everyday stuff of, of life. And that has a sense of authenticating. It's, we can take it seriously because it makes sense at the structural level. And, and here we are, thinking geography. And if you're a military strategist, Why fight if I can let the land do the work for me? Isn't that, wouldn't that? And these people are in a vulnerable spot. They got the Dead Sea on their side. They can't go anywhere. It's not like they're going to last very long if they all jump in the water. I mean, it's a lot of salt. It's going to be difficult to swim very long. It's going to be hard on our eyes, skin, all the rest. I mean, I die right away from it, but it's not going to be convenient. I've got a geographic structure by which I could go and take care of these people. And that is not what Jehoshaphat did. Notice the text. The crisis didn't make him think, I have resources by which I can take these people on. In fact, his perspective is much different. Though he is strong, his perspective is that these nations together could do damage to us. Despite geographic strength, these nations could harm us, come against us. Notice the text. Notice how the crisis compels Jehoshaphat to bring the people together and seek the Lord. Verse 3. 
He was afraid. He was afraid that though we're in a vulnerable position right now, they could attack and they could do a lot against him. So he resolved to seek the Lord. He proclaimed a fast for all of Judah who gathered to seek the Lord. They came from all the cities of Judah to seek him. The, the cities of Judah is a phrase that cycles throughout Jehoshaphat's description in Second Chronicles. It's the cities of Judah that... that Joshua had to strengthen them. Now they're coming back to Jerusalem. Representatives are coming back to Jerusalem to meet in the temple, to seek God. Verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard. And he said, look at, look at Jehoshaphat's prayer. It calls together themes of God's promises and how God has fulfilled those promises. And it ends with Solomon's perspective in in second Chronicles six when Solomon dedicated the temple and how Solomon prayed Lord God of our ancestors verse six are you not the God who is in heaven do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations power and might are in your hand and no one can stand against you Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name and have said, if disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you because of our distress and you will hear and deliver. Now here are the Ammonites, Moabites and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. You did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Look how they repay us. By coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast multitude that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but we look to In 2 Chronicles 6, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed, Lord, when famine comes, when pestilence, when we're attacked, and your people gather in this place or look toward it, this place where you put your name, where you said your name would dwell, there in that place. Lord, do justice, deliver us, vindicate us. And Jehoshaphat here is is reminding God of what Solomon said. And in chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, where the Lord responds, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, then I will deliver. I'll show my faithfulness. 2 Chronicles 7.14 Jehoshaphat's doing just that. And he's doing so in light of God's promise to Abraham. You promised Abraham this land. Your people came in. You drove out the inhabitants. They have built a temple for you. Lord, do justice here. The grid of Jehoshaphat's prayer 
brings together two lines. God's concern for his name and Jehoshaphat's desperate situation. A theological and a political line are brought together and and they're brought now side by side so that as God acts in a vertical fashion for his namesake, he's also acting in a horizontal fashion for his people, for peace. This framework of what God does for God and what he does for his people, this is a framework that we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And this is what it means to to know God. To know that what God is concerned for for himself is he's concerned for for us. This is going to play out through the rest of this prayer and it plays out through the New Testament. All the way to the end of the Bible, where the, the last scene, the last few scenes of the Bible are God dwelling with his people in this city, this new city of Jerusalem, in this cube-shaped city that resembles a temple, and God's presence is there with his people. So that what God has done for himself to show his radiant glory, he's doing for his people and bringing them to himself. This is a structure that you can follow, again, if you're still just thinking about Christianity and what the, what the Bible is about. It's about God's jealousy for his name and working through a particular people to show that to other people so that he could be known and they would want him. And you as well, that you could be a part of this, to want God who is attractive and seen through people. For Jehoshaphat, this all rests on relative military strength. And though at this point, Jehoshaphat's enemies from Moab and Edom, the Munites are there, though at this point they're in a vulnerable geographic position, Solomon recognizes that if they march out against us, they're more numerous and they could do some damage to us. That's his perspective. His perspective is, now I, I can get this. I'll take advantage now. I'm going to seek God first. So he stops, gathers the people, and prays. Just a, maybe a word to, to older Christians. If you've been a believer for a longer period of time, or, uh, or you're, you're a Christian who's fairly experienced in, in life, and over time... Uh, crises maybe just don't matter so much to us. We've been through this before. We have experience. We can handle it. Remember the first time you drove on an interstate that was multiple lanes, white knuckles? But you've done that recently, and it's no, I do this all the time. This is no big deal. I got it. I got it. Or it's not just experience we could easily rely upon. It's resources. I mean, I generally have enough to cover myself right now. Okay. There's great danger in aging as a Christian and not following Jehoshaphat's example. 
There's great danger in just self-reliance. I know where they're at. I know I could go get them. I could starve them out. Let's go do it. I've been on this interstate before I got it. I, I have enough. I can take care of myself here. There's great danger in not recognizing, as we will see in the next paragraph, the, the perspective of someone who is known of God and knows God is to go to God first in a crisis, even if we think we could take care of it. I want to seek him first because life is not just about deliverance. Life is not just about horizontal smooth spiritual living. There's a vertical element in its primary. My life is about God, not smooth circumstances. So in crisis that comes, is not just how can I throw money at it, how can I throw experience at it, but God, how can I know you in this? What are you doing here and there's a danger of aging knowledge and success it's a danger of not being desperate Jehoshaphat was this crisis compelled Jehoshaphat to seek God James Thompson commentator writes The chronicler lays great stress on Jehoshaphat's self-humbling, repentance and dependence on God in the face of a grave threat. This chapter is an example of seeking the Lord and a demonstration of the Lord's willingness and desire to respond. Times of crisis compel us to gather and seek the Lord so that we can have confidence in him. Verse 13, all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Quick aside, verse 13, if ever you see wives and children in scripture, it's nearly always an emotional scene and a time of either great joy or desperation. Nearly always emotional. Key words, women and children together, it's almost always emotional and it's polar. Great danger or great joy. In the midst of the congregation, the spirit, look at this, verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came on Jehazel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite from Asaph's descendants. What we're looking at here in verse 14, we have to recall way back to 1 Chronicles in chapters 23 through 27. And last week, this is one of the reasons why I did the review. Do you remember all the detail there about the Levites and their descendants and their roles and the importance? That, that is going to cast a shadow here even into this portion of what the chronicler writes. Because in the midst of this crisis, after their prayer, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon one of these Levites. And what we have is, is a promenading of the word from the Lord to the people in this time of crisis. In other words, God is ready to answer, and he's going to answer through the structures that are already established for the people. 
Verse 15, here's what he said. Listen carefully, all Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. What a glorious moment. Here's the spirit of the Lord coming upon one who is involved in the structures of Israel's religion at this time. And these comeback kids who've come back from the exile are are reading this and, and wanting to have something like this in their days as God did in, in, in days past. And here he's ready to speak through this individual to this moment of crisis. And here's what he says. Do not be afraid, verse 15. Don't be discouraged because of this vast multitude. For the battle is not yours. This crisis is not just an inconvenience for you. It's not just something for you to go fix. It's God's, verse 15. Do you see that? It's God's. So tomorrow, go down against them. You'll see them coming up the ascent of Ziz. That is, they want to get out of that region. They know that this will camp out, but some vulnerability. Get out of there, go fight. You'll find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness of Jeruel. Look at verse 17. You do not have to fight this battle. Only position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. This is not about you, but it's not that you can't, you're not going to be involved. And this is the grid of war in, in many places in the Old Testament. Israel, I want you to just go and stand there. But in a moment, we're going to see more than just standing. I, I want you to just position yourselves first. Just act like you're going to fight. You're not, but just act like it. Just go. That's what the Lord says. You do not have to fight this battle. Just position yourselves, verse 17. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Tomorrow, go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord to worship him. The Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel, shouting in a loud voice. Positioning, praise, and that's it. God's going to fight. It's utter confidence. They're praising God before they go out. They they are confident in what God is going to do, simply because God said he was going to do it. The processes have been followed. The temple's been set up. There's a crisis. We seek God. We're going to be confident that he's going to work this out. And they gather to praise. The Levites stood praising the Lord God of Israel, shouting in a loud voice. In the midst of this crisis, Joshua was compelled to seek the Lord. And on the backside, the Lord answered through this man and gave the people great, great confidence. The, the drama of these first few paragraphs hinges here on the message through this man by the Spirit of the Lord, confirming what God had said. In the last few months with everything going on with COVID, uh, early when the shutdown was going on especially, a number of people were struggling 
just emotionally and so forth. I heard a, um, a journalist in New York City, uh, she had not left her apartment for quite some time, had all of her groceries delivered. And at that time in New York City, it was pretty dangerous. And who knew exactly what was going on? She could work from her apartment. She didn't leave. She had groceries delivered. Like she had a little balcony. She'd stick her head out. She worked out inside of her apartment. But it was weeks, and she hadn't left. And she was feeling the, the lack of personal connection, so she began, as a journalist, to do some research. And, and she thought about astronauts. You know, astronauts have this kind of loneliness often, too. So she did some investigating with NASA and, and did this interview with one of the astronauts who'd been at the space station for an extended period of time. It was about six months or so. And she just never, how do you survive that? I mean, I'm here in my apartment. I know there are other people around, but I'm just so lonely. He went on to talk about the different strategies they had and the importance of, of talking about the, or talking to the, the command on the ground. And then he began to detail more of what that was like, that, that the command on the ground gave information that wasn't just personally encouraging, i.e. some human contact beyond just the, the couple of people in the space station, but Detailing the fact that every day, every day, the mission is rewritten. I didn't know this, but it makes sense. Every day, the mission is rewritten because what happens on a particular day takes resources that are now depleted that need to be recalculated for what the folks have up there if they accomplish a certain amount of work that they planned to do, then that can continue on on pace. But if they didn't, they have to recalculate because they only have so much time there. Every day, the mission has a crisis. Every day, it's redone. Every day, the people on the ground send information up because every day up there, when they wake up, they realize, I am in a crisis. I am vulnerable here. I suggest that's how we live before God. Every day is a sense, an overwhelming crisis. really can't live that way. But a sense of dependence like Jehoshaphat has. Every day, the mission of my life sort of tweaked in light of what's happened, in light of what I have, what I don't have, where I'm at, who I'm with, who I'm not with, how these things are working out. And every day, I need to know the God of promise. Every day. Every day, he is jealous to ensure that his glory is being proclaimed through me through the people of God I'm with every day. How should we respond to God in difficult times? I suggest that times of crisis compel us to together seek God and be confident in him. I want to set out just a few ideas and really just summary of, of what we've thought about here to to walk out the door with for the week. Who knows what crisis you may have? 
The first idea is this. Don't wait for a crisis to seek the Lord. You won't seek him well. Over and over, we've seen from Asa onward in, in the descendants of Solomon here and then Rehoboam from Asa onward, there's been this pattern that many of these kings sought God during times of peace, and Jehoshaphat did, sending out teachers, fortifying military strength, doing this first, seeking God first. This may be a situation in, in this week is going to have a great crisis for you. It's seeking God first. It's seeking him daily so that when that crisis comes, yes, you can remember vertical before horizontal. This is not just about me. In other words, to say this crisis I feel and the degree to which I feel it, God knows it. There's no sense in which the crisis could feel more pressing on me than to the degree to which God knows it and is sovereign over it. I'm seeking him. I'm mindful of that. So seek him before the crisis comes. We often pray, well, that person seems to be struggling. Maybe a crisis would help them. Probably not, actually. Probably not. What they need is to just seek God right where they're at. And maybe that's you. I'll, I'll, when... When I get older, or when there's a crisis, no, today, God's revealed himself, it's right here in his word, probably today, now. Second, God's historical promises that we are seeing here, like to Abraham, have been fulfilled. They've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, descended from Abraham. Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promises that is fulfilled by the Spirit whom the Father and the Son have sent so that we as God's people dwelling together in the power of the Spirit, we are the fulfillment ourselves of God's promises. And brothers and sisters, if God was jealous for his people in Jehoshaphat's day, Mark it well, he is not ignorant about you who are the people of his son filled with his spirit. God has fulfilled these. Finally, this God's reputation is displayed through us. When you come to that crisis, you remember this is God's reputation that's on display here. It's not just convenience, though I want it. <laughs> There's a vertical axis in play. This is God's reputation through us. So I'm going to seek him. I'm going to seek him as if the information he gives me really is life or death. That's how we respond in times of crisis. JC mentioned earlier that we are partaking of the Lord's 